All right, everyone, welcome back. This is a wretched hive of scum and villainy. We took a hiatus for about a year, but we are making a comeback and we're hoping to come back stronger than we were before. Today, we are going to discuss the season three finale of The Mandalorian. There is a lot to unpack. There has been a lot going on in Star Wars since we last put out an episode. And we're just going to dive right in. We're going to talk about everything in chapter 24 of The Mandalorian, which is called The Return. So this is this episode will contain spoilers. So if you have not yet watched the season three finale of The Mandalorian, stop what you're doing, go back and watch it and then come back and listen to us. So this episode picks up where the previous episode left off. Bo-Katan and her squad are retreating after being ambushed by Moff Gideon and Imperial Commandos. These are new Imperial Commandos, and we can assume that these Imperial Commandos' armor is made of Beskar. Um, if you watch in the episode when they're firing on these Imperial Commandos, the way that the blasts kind of ricochet off of their armor, it's very similar to what happens when you see a Mandalorian getting shot by blaster fire. So I think it's pretty safe to say that the Imperial Commandos' armor is also made by Beskar alloy, and we know Moff Gideon was working on incorporating the Beskar into some sort of armor, and I think that this is the final product of that. Um, we also have um, the Mandalorian, Din Djarin, who has been captured, and he's currently in the possession of two of the Imperial Commandos. Does anybody else feel like it's weird to call him the Mandalorian because we just have so many other Mandalorians now? I feel like it's not specific enough. Um, I'm going to refer to him as Dejarin for this episode just because to differentiate him from all the other Mandalorians. So, you know, as to be expected, about two minutes into the episode, Din Dejarin escapes from the Imperial Commandos. Um, he breaks loose and he is fighting two of the commandos, and then Grogu shows up in his little IG-12 suit, and <laughs> he hits his no button and saves Din Djarin. And then Din decides that they're going to go after Moff Gideon. They're going to find him within the base. Um, he knows that they they have to make sure Gideon is actually dead this time in order for them to be secure in retaking Mandalore. So they go off to find Moff Gideon. Uh, meanwhile, you have Bo-Katan and the rest of the Mando squad. They have escaped to the surface. Um, we see that the TIE bombers and interceptors that Moff Gideon had requested in the previous episode, he has them. They are released and... We also see that Gideon learns that Din Djarin has escaped. Um, and then we have R5. R5 is the droid that Din Djarin picks up earlier in the season. And I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but R5 that Din Djarin has is the same droid that the Jawas initially tried to sell to Owen, Lars, and Luke. In a New Hope. Um, now R5 in A New Hope, he actually actually purposely malfunctioned his motivator 
And he did this at the advice of R2-D2 so that Lars could purchase R2-D2 instead of R5. So that was all done intentionally because R2-D2 knew that he needed to get out of the possession of the Jawas and to someone who was going to be able to get him to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay, so then we have Axe Wolves who has broken off from the squad. Um, He's going to the command ship that's in the atmosphere over the planet and Bo-Katan tells him to evacuate everyone from the command ship and use the command ship as a decoy for the interceptors and the bombers. So when this scene initially came into play and he's running on to the command ship and he's telling everyone to evacuate, he takes the seat at the helm of the ship and then you're kind of wondering, is he going to pull an Admiral Holdo maybe? Um, Is he going to go down with the ship just like she did, except she purposely drove the ship into another ship? Um, But as soon as the Mandos clear out of the command ship, we see the ties begin to attack and Axe is still on board. So then there's that little cliffhanger. Is Axe going to make it or is he not? Um... So then after this, we have uh, the Dindajarn, he comes to these barrier shields and he has R5 disable them one by one. And I kind of wondered initially if this was a slight nod to the Phantom Menace, you know, where they're the barrier shields are in between Qui-Gon Jinn and Darth Maul. So it kind of felt like that a little bit, but it also kind of felt like a video game sequence. Like I was playing a video game instead of watching an episode of The Mandalorian. And I don't know, I just kind of felt like this whole part was unnecessary and it was done more so for filler content. And I know I'm probably going to get slack for saying anything bad about The Mandalorian. I like The Mandalorian. I love The Mandalorian, but you've got to be able to critique it as well, guys. Not everything's perfect. R5 tells him where the command center is and he has R5 disable these shields one by one so that he can, I guess, fight the Imperial commandos that are in between each barrier shield without interference from the others. And that makes sense. But again, I just kind of felt like this really wasn't a necessary sequence, like contributing to the main story. And then you have R5 with the mouse droids. Um... If you guys remember, the little droids that are running around in Moff Gideon's base are the ones that are also on the Death Star when Luke and Han are pretending to be stormtroopers and they have Chewbacca as their captive. So, I mean, again, it's like it's it's somewhat entertaining, but I just didn't really feel like it was necessary. It felt kind of forced. Um. So then we have where... Dindajaran and Grogu find the Gideon clones. Now, this is where it starts to get really interesting because if you watched the episode prior to the season finale, you have Commandant Hux, who I'm assuming is later going to become General Hux. Um, he d- he talks about how Gideon had Dr. Pershing doing experiments on Navarro with clones and that sort of thing. And Moff Gideon tells him that, you know, cloning is his obsession, not his. But in reality, Moff Gideon did, in fact, have Dr. Pershing doing 
clone experiments on Navarro. But you kind of have to understand what Dr. Pershing's research is pertaining to in terms of cloning. What he's looking at doing is finding a way that two individuals can contribute the best parts of each of their DNA and merge them into one clone. So that was the basis of Dr. Pershing's research. And you kind of have to bear that in mind when you finally learn what Moff Gideon was trying to do with the cloning. Um, but they come across these clones and they're clones of Moff Gideon and Man the Mandalorian Dindajaran actually overloads the tanks that they're in, which destroys the clones in the process. So could they have been the super army? The world may never know. Okay, so following the description of Moff Gideon's clones, um, we go to Bo-Katan and the squad and they find refuge in these surface caves. And the scouts who remained on Mandalore after the purge that we met in the previous episode, they take Bo-Katan and the squad to these caves and they tell them of how they planted these farms and there's old plant species that were indigenous to Mandalore that hadn't been seen since before the civil wars of Mandalore. So they're kind of showcasing how the planet is kind of slowly making a recovery in the absence of a population. And again, it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's, it's a nice little tidbit to, you know, a tribute to the old Mandalore that happened before the purge. But again, it was something that I felt kind of forced, especially since they were there for maybe two minutes. Like they didn't really spend a lot of time in the surface cave. Because then the armorer comes down with the gauntlet ships and is bringing the reinforcements. Now, one question that I kind of thought about and I'm kind of seeing if maybe other people have this similar line of thought. Does anybody else feel like the armorer submitted to Bogotan way too easily? Because there's been all these years of disdain and resentment that the armorer has had for Bogotan. And, you know, because Bo-Katan and her people didn't follow, you know, the creed and they weren't true Mandalorians. And it just seems like they there it was just too it was too easy. The the armor kind of bent the knee way too willingly to Bo-Katan. And it's another kind of plot point that I feel like kind of faltered in this season. So, I mean, if you guys have arguments or comments, like definitely, you know mention that in the comment section because I'd like to hear what everybody else thinks about that. Personally, I do think that the armorer, it was just, it was way too easy. Um, but the armorer and Bo-Katan, they all meet up. The, you know, the Mandalorians are dropping from the gauntlets and they use their jetpacks to make their way into Gideon's base. Now this air battle that goes on with everybody using their jetpacks and you have the Mandalorians meeting the Imperial Commandos and they're fighting each other in the air. This was by far the highlight of the episode for me, just because this was a very unique battle. And it's something that we haven't really seen a whole lot of before. And it was really awesome to see like Bo-Katan with the dark saber and she's 
cutting through the Imperial commandos and then the armor is barreling through them with her hammer, her forge hammer. And it was just really, it was an awesome sequence in my personal opinion. That was the highlight of the episode for me. Okay, so while the air battle is going on, we have the Mandalorian. He reaches the command center. He gets locked in by Moff Gideon, and Moff Gideon is pissed because Din Djarin just took out all of the clones that he's created. And, you know, years of research and development and work has just gone down the drain. And when Gideon talks about his clones, he describes them as being the best parts of himself but improved by adding the one thing that he never had, which is the force. And can you imagine having such a massive ego that you feel like your only flaw is not having the force and that you'd otherwise be like the perfect soldier? Again, (laughs) it's like a glimpse into uh, Gideon's personality there and just, you know, how highly he views himself. So he says that he's isolating the potential to wield the force and incorporate it into soldiers. So that kind of ties back into why he was, you know, searching for Grogu in the earlier seasons, because Grogu was kind of an easier target than a full-fledged, fully-grown Jedi to extract that DNA that possesses midichlorians. And but now he's got it and he's developed these clones, which are now gone. And this leads to a confrontation between Din Djarin and Gideon. And we start to see the similarities between um, Gideon's next generation Dark Trooper suit and Mandalorian suits. And again, it's a lot in the way that, you know, Blaster Fire is diffracted off of them and how they how they take strikes from blades and hand-to-hand combat it's all very very similar so you know for sure that the Beskar alloy in Moff Gideon's suit is operating basically the exact same way as it does in Mandalorian armor and if you notice on Gideon's helmet there's a couple of horns And I was definitely getting some Maul Super Commando slash Death Watch vibes from these horns on his helmet. So then it kind of does make you wonder, like, does Gideon have a past affiliation with the Mandalorians? If so, was it uh, an affiliation with Death Watch? It's an interesting theory. And if anybody has more on that, I'd love to hear it. Now, you have the Elite praetorian guards that show up and they did show up in the previous episode um r.i.p pause Vizla. but if these praetorian guards look familiar it's because they're the same guards that are in snoke's throne room so these are the same guards that kylo ren and ray are fighting in the sequence in the throne room after Kylo Ren has just killed Snoke. So it's more of leading into the First Order. You know, these Imperial remnants are coming together and they're going to be the foundation that becomes the First Order. And this is just like another setup and glimpse into that. Um, Now, Din Djarin, he does fare a little bit better than Paz Vizsla with the Preordin Guards. But ultimately, he has to be saved again by Grogu. And then the guards pursue Grogu instead of continuing to fight with 
Din Djarin. So then Din Djarin keeps fighting with Gideon. Gideon's preventing him from going after Grogu. And you get this really intense, dramatic music that swells that kind of implies that someone we like may die. Who knows? So Bo-Katan comes to the rescue. She intervenes in Din Djarin's fight with Moff Gideon. And she tells Din Djarin to go save Grogu and that she can handle Gideon. And she unleashes the Darksaber. And Gideon's counter to the Darksaber is an Electrostaff that's really similar to both what we see in Grievous's Magna Guards from Revenge of the Sith. And also it's very similar to the salves that the Praetorian Guards use. So the two of them face off and they're fighting and... So Din Djarin and Grogu, they defeat the Praetorian Guards with a combination of Mando's warrior skills and Grogu's force abilities. And then they go to join the fight that Bo-Katan is having with Moff Gideon. Meanwhile, you have Axe. He did not pull a Admiral Holdo. He is flying the Burning Command ship. And he is aiming for Gideon's base. He's going to drive the command ship into the base and destroy it. So he contacts Bo and Casca Reeves and he tells them to evacuate, get everyone out because he's bringing this in and it's going to destroy the whole base. Um, Bo-Katan is obviously preoccupied with Moff Gideon. And during their, during their battle, Gideon crushes the Darksaber. He crushes the Darksaber. So this weapon, this ancient weapon of Mandalorian culture is gone. And oddly enough, it's destroyed by one of the two people who had been vying for it the most. And it's kind of like a it's kind of like a toddler saying, well, if I can't have it, no one can. And he completely obliterates it using the strength of his suit. And he tells Bo-Katan that, you know, Mandalorians are basically nothing without their trinkets. And then Bo counters that Mandalorians are stronger together. And she says that a few times throughout the course of the season. And then you have... Din Djarin and Grogu who finally join the fight and the three of them it takes the three of them to confront Moff Gideon in his next generation dark trooper suit and so they're basically just holding him off until the ship crashes into the base and when it does Gideon is incinerated R.I.P. Gideon and Grogu protects Bo-Katan and Din Djarin with this kind of force bubble. Now, I feel like their their development in Grogu's force abilities and training is better than what they had with Rey in the sequel trilogy. Because you have Grogu who's actually learning little bits at a time and implementing them in battle, whereas you had Rey, who was, you know, Rey Mary Sue Palpatine, who barely had held a lightsaber before fighting Kylo Ren and beating him, which is completely unrealistic, but we'll save that for another episode. So character development with Grogu, an infant, is better than that they had with Rey. I'm just saying. 
So Din Djarin and Bokatan and Grogu, they all, everybody comes out relatively unscathed. They have a ceremony down in the minds of Mandalore. And it's interesting because, you know, we have a foundling who's taking the creed in this little excerpt and the armorer has removed the helmet stipulation from the creed oath that i found really interesting and again it's something where i'm like the these are traditions and and values that they have held on to years and it seems like they've just kind of forsaken it way too easily i mean granted you have the ones that took the oath that are maintaining you know not removing their helmets but to remove that stipulation from the creed so soon is is kind of surprising to me um but after this foundling you know takes the oath and he's you know his helmet's sprinkled by the living waters of mandalore we have dindajaran who brings grogu before the armor and he says you know add him to the song he's no longer a foundling and the armorer argues that you know grogu can't speak the creed so he's too young he has to remain a foundling and din Djarin then says well if a parent allowed it wouldn't he be able to be a mandalorian apprentice and the armorer says yes but you know these the grogu's parents are not in the picture and finally din Djarin officially adopts grogu as his son which i don't know it was almost anticlimactic because it's like i mean that's basically what they've been for three seasons so i mean it's kind of, i mean yeah it was kind of nice to have that validation and you finally like officially say it out loud but it it was also just kind of like okay what else is new <laughs> So, but I guess, you know, technicalities and they have to, you know, in order for him to be a Mandalorian apprentice, you know, a parent has to grant consent. So he has to officially become a parent. And then he is dubbed Din Grogu. That's really, that's really interesting. And I kind of like the sound of that, Din Grogu. But as he's made a Mandalorian apprentice, you know, it, the, the camera pans down into the living waters and you see the mythosaur again who is stirring underneath the water. And it's almost foreboding. It's like, well, now that you've become a Mandalorian apprentice, there's there's more danger and more challenges ahead for you as an apprentice. So it's kind of like an ominous feeling almost. Okay, so then we go to another ceremony, which is taking place before the Great Forge, which, you know, Axe talks about in the beginning. And if you remember from Clone Wars, it's a, it was like a center point of the civilization of Mandalore prior to the Purge. And the armorer gives Bo-Katan the torch to light the Great Forge. Um, now, I did get goosebumps when you hear Axe start shouting for mandalore and it's just like he just gets real like it's coming from his soul like that gut feeling like for mandalore and i just thought that was great that was a lot of enthusiasm i gave an a plus for that so after that ceremony you know the episode's kind of wrapping up and din Djarin and grogu go to visit carson tiva which if you're not sure who that is it's the x-wing pilot who found that you know Gideon didn't make it to Coruscant. He found the remnants of the Imperial shuttle 
and um he's the one that we saw the live action zip talking to we'll talk about that in another episode too but i was also really excited about that and Dan Djarin is basically he goes and offers to start hunting Imperial remnants for the New Republic on a case by case basis. So they make that deal. So then you're kind of like, well, does this kind of set him up to be in Ahsoka? Because if he's hunting for Imperial remnants and Ahsoka's looking for Thrawn, they would you'd think their paths might cross at some point. And the episode wraps up with them there on Navarro. Um, Din Djarin finally takes Grief Karga up on his offer to have a home and settle on Navarro. So they get a cabin. And Mando also gives Grief Karga a repaired IG-11 to be the new marshal for Navarro. And the, you know, the last scene you see... Mando sitting on the porch of his cabin with his feet propped up and Din Grogu's playing in the little, there's like a little pond in front of their cabin and he's floating, you know, the little frog around and then it ends. And overall, I felt like the episode was kind of anticlimactic. I mean, it had really good, it had high points, but I feel like a lot of it was just filler with like little tidbits of backstory here and there um my main disappointment with the episode and i hope i'm not the only one who kind of had this feeling but when they talked about thrawn in the previous episode and the name of this episode is called the return yes the obvious answer is it's the return of the mandalorians to mandalore but I kind of also kind of thought that maybe that could have also been implying the return of Thrawn. And I was really disappointed that we didn't get to see Thrawn in this episode. And I know that might be an unrealistic expectation, but I really felt like this season was basically setting it up for Ahsoka, which is supposed to drop in August of this year. And I really, I really just, I had this feeling like we were going to see Thrawn in that final episode, like even just a glimpse of him, even if it was just the chimera coming out of hyperspace and and you know into the atmosphere of Mandalore something like that I really thought we were going to get a glimpse of Thrawn and I was very disappointed that we didn't but let me know what your guys thoughts were on the season three finale of the Mandalorian make sure that you guys check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter give us a like and a follow and share us um, we're going to be on Spotify so you guys will be able to find our episodes from now on on Spotify and I'm really excited to be back and doing these episodes again with you guys. So help us keep the momentum going. Give us a listen. Recommend us to your friends. You guys are awesome. I'm glad to be back. Can't wait for more Star Wars content to come out so that we can discuss it. Uh, keep an eye out for our next episode. We're going to be discussing the Ahsoka teaser trailer that dropped. So keep your eye out for that. We're going to have a lot to unload in that as well. And you guys have. A great day and may the force be with you.